Have you ever wondered how all the Bible fits together? Um, I bet, yeah, never, right? <laughs> he knows how it fits together. Amen, that's great. And I bet that you spent a lot of time this summer in the books of Zephaniah and Nahum and Joel, right? You spent a lot of time going through those. And you spent a lot of time memorizing who King Ahaz was and who King Hezekiah and King Ahab is and trying to keep them all straight. Maybe you've even pondered deeply who Melchizedek is, right? We, we don't, sometimes our minds don't think like that because some of those things are a little bit more obscure. And that's part of why we're doing this series called The Thread. And what we're doing in this series is we're taking one message from each book of the Bible, so we're just preaching not an overview of each book, just one passage from each book, and preaching that and showing how all of the Bible is a thread that connects to Jesus. And we were doing that last year. We took the summer off and we worked through 1 Thessalonians for the summer, and now we're back. This is our first sermon back on the thread, looking at how it's all connected. And that's why we're doing this, because some of those more obscure things in the Bible, it's easy for us to go, oh, that's too hard to understand, or I'm not sure what that's talking about. And what we wanted to do is help make the Bible more alive to us by showing us that it's connected, it's all connected, and it's all pointing to the same thing. It's pointing to Jesus. We believe that all 66 books in the Bible are inspired by God, but they make one unified whole and are pointing us to Jesus Christ and all culminate in Jesus. So the passage today that we're looking at is Psalm 110. And of, of the 150 Psalms, there's a lot in the book of Psalms. We're going to focus in on 110 and we're going to show how it connects to the thread. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament of all the Psalms. And here's the three things that we're going to see in it today. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the exalted Messiah. We're going to see that Jesus is the conquering king. And then we're going to see that Jesus is the great high priest. All in this one chapter in the book of Psalm. So I'm going to invite you to read along with me. If you have your Bibles, or it should be up on the screen behind me, Psalm 110. This is what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So we're going to take this and break it down into these three sections that I just mentioned. It's going to look a little different than normal because normally I just work through one verse to the next. But these three themes are in different little sections of this chapter. So we're going to pull them out and put them together uh, where the theme is. And so the first theme is the Lord said to my Lord, the exalted Messiah. And this comes from verse 1 and then verse 5a. This is what that says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 5a it says, the Lord is at your right hand. Now if you wonder what 5a means, that just means the first half of the verse. B is the second half of a verse. We do that sometimes. So it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord is at your right hand. 
There are two important pieces to this, so we're going to slow it down. I'm going to take one section and then show you the second part of this. But the first part is the Lord, God, is speaking, and David is getting to listen in. So let's just just slow down and see what, what this says. The Lord, God Almighty, says to my Lord, King David, says this. So King David is the author of this. Let me just back up here for a second. He's the, he's the king over Israel. God has placed him in that position. And he's known as a godly man, a man after God's own heart. And God has made a promise to David that someone on, from his lineage will always be on the throne. And that someday a Messiah, a deliverer is going to come who will come from the line of David. Okay, so that's really important that we get this picture that David is the one writing this. He's the king, and he's been told that someone from his line will one day be the Messiah for God's people, and that somebody from his line will always be on the throne, an eternal throne. And so this David is sitting there, and this is, uh, this is really an amazing thing that I didn't really consider until, until working on this sermon this week. So if you've lost me, come back. This is, this is really important and kind of cool. King David, a human being, is being invited into the presence of God speaking to the Son, the Messiah, and David gets to listen in and hear it. This is really like an amazing thought. And God says to my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, David is saying, God is speaking to David's Lord, the Messiah, and he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So I hope I'm making this clear. But David is sitting there, and he hears God speaking to his Lord, the Messiah, and they're talking, and David's listening, and he gets to be a part of it, and he hears it, and it's an astounding thing. Here's this king, through the Spirit, in the presence of God, hearing God talk to the Messiah, And God the Father is telling the Messiah, and David is calling them both his Lord, the Lord, speaking to my Lord, David is saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is how Charles Spurgeon, he was called the Prince of Preachers. Uh, This is how he says it. How condescending, and we think of condescending as a negative term, condescending simply means coming down to another level. So in this case, it's talking about what an amazing thing that God would come down to our level. How, God, how condescending on Jehovah's part to permit a mortal ear to hear and a human pen to record his secret conversation with his co-equal son. I love how he says that. How amazing is it that a human being was able to hear and then to write down this secret conversation that God the Father and God the Son are having. How greatly should we prize the revelation of his private and solemn discourse with the Son and herein made public for the refreshing of his people. That he was able to hear this and now all these thousands of years later we're able to hear it. That God the Father and God the Son, the Messiah, are talking and David is hearing it and acknowledging them both. That God the Lord says to his Lord, the Messiah, that's actually going to come from his lineage, but is still his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, why does this matter? Because in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, in verses 41 through 46, now we fast forward to the thread to the time of Jesus, and this is what Jesus is doing. Now while with the Pharisees, 
they were gathered together and Jesus asked them a question. So the Pharisees are a group of religious leaders that believed a Messiah was coming, but they thought that he was a political Messiah, not a spiritual Messiah, and that he was going to come and deliver them from, from being underneath the bondage of the Romans. And they had all these preconceived ideas and they've misunderstood the scriptures and they were the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus is sitting there talking with them and he asked them a question and this is what he says. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, he's the son of David. We know that he's going to come from David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? He's asking this question, how is it then that David, filled with the Spirit, calls this Messiah, the Christ, how does he call him the Lord? Who calls your kid a Lord? the Lord, right? If, if he's coming from the line of David, he's certainly not going to call him the Lord. But because he is the Lord, David is calling him that. And so how is it then, Jesus is saying, that David, in the Spirit, is calling this Messiah, this Christ, the Lord? How is he saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet? He's quoting it verbatim from Psalm 110. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How does that work? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone ask him any more questions. They were totally set back and they were like, I don't know how to answer him. I guess he's got a good point. How is David calling him the Lord if it's really his son? And they are wrestling with the fact that they've totally misunderstood the scriptures. And so the first part of this, this section about the exalted Messiah is that God himself is calling this one who will come from the line of David, who will be the Messiah, who is Jesus. He is calling him Lord. And he's saying, you're going to sit at my right hand. So God the Father and God the Son, sitting right at his right hand, are going to rule over and reign over everything. And all their enemies will be under their footstool. And man, the footstool, we could have done a lot of fun things with that. I decided not to. Like, I was going to take a picture of me sitting down on all fours with my 13-year-old with his feet up on my back, and I'm a footstool. The footstool is supposed to be something that shows, like, he is going to dominate his enemies. Like, they're going to be like a footstool to him. And so the Lord says to my Lord, God in heaven says to the Messiah, Jesus, in the hearing of David, he says, Messiah, Christ, Jesus, you're going to sit at my right hand, and I'm going to make all your enemies your footstool. And the Lord is at the right hand of the Father. So the first thing is to see the Lordship of this one, this Messiah, Jesus the Christ. But now it gets to be the heart, the next part, which is the hard part. It says, until I make your enemies your footstool. One of the things that can be really hard for us in our culture today is to believe that there is an enemy of God. It's hard for us to think like that. It's hard for us to comprehend sometimes. Sometimes it's hard for us to accept. It's hard for us to grasp that there's a great cosmic battle going on around us. And that the Lord, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are at war and they have enemies. And that's really hard for us to grasp sometimes because we like to think of things as just a lot of peace and a lot of comfort and a lot of okay things going on. But the Bible tells us there's a cosmic war going on. And this passage reminds us that because of that, we need a Messiah. 
this passage reminds us that somebody needs to put the enemies of God under his feet. And, and who's going to do that? So this passage reminds us that we need a Messiah and that the Messiah is a deliverer. The Messiah is a savior. The Messiah is one who comes and rescues people out. And so the good news today, and if you've been here long enough, you know I always say I'm a preacher of good news. The good news today is that we need a Messiah and there is one. <laughs> we need a savior, someone to rescue us, and there is one. But he's, what is he going to rescue us from? That's where we get, it gets a little sticky in our culture today. Deliver or save us from what? What's the Messiah supposed to do? If God's going to put all of his enemies under his feet, who are his enemies? So let's just take a minute to look at what the Bible says about who those enemies are. The first enemy is there actually is a being called Satan. There is a spiritual being who is a, an enemy towards God. This is what 1 Peter 5, 8 says. Be alert and of sober mind. Why? Some of you know this one. Because your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. There's an enemy and he's prowling like a lion looking to devour you and I. Not just come alongside and be a nice little lion <laughs> that we can pet and hang around. He wants to kill us and destroy us and to devour us. There is an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. His name is Satan. Revelation 12, 7. Now war arose in heaven, an actual war. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and they're eventually going to be thrown out and down to the earth. You see, we need a deliverer because there is a spiritual enemy. We need a deliverer because we have another enemy. It's called sin. All of us need saving from this, right? All of us need the Messiah to deliver us from this. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, one thing you and I all have in common. No matter what our politics is, no matter whether we're Packer or Viking fans, no matter what any of that is, we have one thing in common for sure. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if that was the end of the story, I'd be a very depressing preacher, and you'd be like, why do I want to come hear him preach? And it gets even worse because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that sin is death. But it goes on to tell us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But why do we need a Messiah? Why does the Lord say to my Lord, I'm going to put all your enemies under your feet because there are real enemies. And those enemies are Satan, then our own sin. And then we got another problem, our own desires and our own passions war against God's design. I got not only my sin, but my own passions and my own things that I'm about and interested, they, they often war against God's design, how God wants things to be. This is what James 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your own passions are at war within you. So not only do I got an enemy, Satan, not only do I have sin, I have my own passions that are at war within me and cause me to reach, lash out and treat people in certain ways and this is what 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. My passions sometimes, when they're opposite of what God's design is, they wage war against my soul. Passion for the things that God designed, passion for the things that God has called us to, those are the things that will bring life. But my own passions and things that are not of God they war against my own soul. 
And you know what I'm talking about. You felt it. You felt things within your own soul that you're just like, man, here I go again. Why am I battling this? Why, why do I have this attitude? Why do I have this thought? Why did I say that thing again? Why did I treat people that way again? Why am I going back to this addiction? Why am I going back to this thought pattern? There's a war. That's why. There's a war going on. My own desires and passions war within me. Paul, I call it the do-do passage in, in Romans 7. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he goes on with this whole thing about all these do's and don'ts. And he goes, man, what's wrong with me? Well, there's a war going on, Paul said. And thanks be to Christ, Christ can deliver us. And the last enemy is the world and culture, humankind in general. We want to do things our own way. We want to do things the way we want to do them. And so James, again, says this in James 4.4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And what we're talking about when we're talking about the world are the things of the world and the things of culture that are opposed to the things of God. There are things that are opposite the way, of the way things God wants them to be and the way God says they should be. Now remember, when God is telling us something, though, it's for our good, it's for life. Most of the time, when I'm at a good place as a father, when I'm instructing my kids, I'm instructing them on things that will be beneficial to them, things for their good. I was just teaching uh, Josh, my 13-year-old, how to, and I was realizing, your youngest, man, you forget to teach them stuff. <laughs> you know, you think they're just picking it up because uh, they're around you. I was just teaching them how to, how to do the jumper cables. All right? Teach them how to do the jumper cables. Now, I was teaching them carefully, so why was I teaching them carefully? Why was I teaching them not to click the two together when they're hooked up to another battery? Right? For his good. <laughs> because when he does that, they spark. If you've never jumped a car, if you take the two and then put them together, they'll spark. Okay? <laughs> they're hooked up to a battery. So be careful. I'm not doing, I didn't correct him because I'm some mean, crabby dad. I corrected him because I wanted him to be safe because it was better for him to do it the right way. You see, there is another way to see things and to do things that is opposite of what God says, and that is usually harmful for us. In fact, it's destructive for us. Doing it God's way brings life. So the other enemy is world and culture and humankind in general saying these are the ways you should do things so that you can be free and do whatever you want to do, but most of the time they're harmful to us. Okay, so this Messiah, this Messiah has come, he's the Lord, and he's going to put his enemies, God's going to put his enemies under his feet. There are enemies, and we just went through what they were, and the good news is a Messiah can come and deliver us from those things. He will deliver us from Satan. He will deliver us from our sin. He will deliver us from our desires and passions which war against him and us internally and against our souls. And he can deliver us from the pressures of the world and the culture that are telling us to do things in a way that's actually destructive to us. That's the good news this morning. This Messiah, this Lord, who said to my Lord, I'll put all your enemies under your feet. Those are those enemies. And that's the good news. 
The second piece of this passage is that Jesus is the conquering king. He will rule. He is a king. Now I have to take just a quick second to remind us this is not the kind of king that we usually think of when we think of kings. When you live in a democracy, you think of a king as probably a bad thing. Right? And if you watch the movies and TV shows, the king is always like lording it over everyone else and like oppressing them and doing all those things, which is what earthly kings do. So that is the problem with the king. They have no accountability, so they're earthly and they're sinful and they're fallen and they do that kind of thing. But we're talking about a heavenly king. We're talking about Jesus, the conquering king, the one who will rule, who is good and perfect and right. So this is a king who has, wants to do nothing more than to bless his children and those who he rules, uh, who rules and reigns over to give them life and to give them benefit. And in fact, he demonstrated that when he died on the cross, right? He demonstrated that because he was willing to give up his very life so that those who he ruled over could have life. This is what the psalmist says about the conquering king who will rule. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The king will rule, but here's the beautiful thing. God's people will finally offer themselves freely to be a part of the work of the Messiah. This is what this passage is trying to say. This conquering king, if finally his people will have his spirit and they'll say, all right, I'm finally going to do it your way. I'm finally going to bow and be subject to the king. And, and it says that they're going to do it with holy garments and with the dew of the youth. They're going to do it with the energy of youth. I, I couldn't help but on the football game on, on Thursday night, some of us were at the UMD football game, and we were sitting there, and Mark was, where's Mark? Uh, Mark was sitting there, and um, a couple other guys, a little bit more vintage. Oh, Mark, you're right in front of me. Mark and I and a couple of guys that I would call vintage, and then some younger people sitting behind us, and I turned around at one point, I said, you see all those young guys down there? We were down there one time. <laughs> we were down there in our youth. We were down there playing that game. We were down there getting all beat up. Not anymore. See, see the, the point of this passage is, is saying that they're going to come with the energy of youth. There was a time when we had that energy and we were passionate. And I couldn't help but think about my mom who had served the Lord almost her entire life. Passed away at 86. She had Parkinson's. My mom is now in the presence of the Lord serving him with the energy of her youth. Isn't that an amazing thought? That, that with the energy and the strength of her youth, she is now serving him in his presence. And this passage is saying that God's people, uh, when he rules over them and they submit to them, they will do it with an energy and a desire and a passion, saying, I'm subject of the king of the universe, and I'm going to do whatever he's calling me to do. I invite you today to consider that. The king of the universe is saying to you, come be one of my subjects so I can let you free to do the things that I have for you to do. The king of the universe is going to rule and he just wants his people to come and say, all right, I'm in. He doesn't want to have to drag us kicking and screaming. He, he, he wants his people to come with a new spirit, a holy garment. He said, from the womb of the morning, the dew of their youth will be theirs, yours. And we're just going to come and say, yeah, I want to be a part of your team. You're the king. I want to serve you. And his people will submit to his rule and his reign with a joy and an energy and a hope and a strength. That's kind of cool to think about. And I don't want to wait till I'm in his presence to do that. I want to be doing that right now. Lord, here I am. Different stages of life in this room. Some of you have way tons, like lots of energy. 
Some of you have not so much energy. Some of you are created as introverts. Some of you are created as extroverts. Some of you have jobs and time frames that are so tight you don't have a lot of margin. Others of you have lots of margin. We're all different. We have all kinds of different availability, but we have the opportunity to serve the king and to come with joy and energy and hope and strength and say, I'm yours, use me in the midst of all of that, and he will use you. And it says he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is a, a picture, it's a serious picture, it's a solemn picture, that this king will rule, and either we will come with the energy of our youth and say, I'm on your team, I want to be a part of it, or he will bring his judgment, and that is part of this. You can't deny that peace. And that he will judge those who oppose him and that there are those who oppose him. So this is the sobering side of the reign of this king. Satan and all those who oppose his reign, and I want to remind you what they're opposing. They will oppose the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice, the compassion, the mercy. Those who oppose him oppose that. A God who's good, who is holy, righteous, just, compassionate, and merciful. And those who say no to that and oppose that, he will judge and execute proper and right justice. That's the good news too. He will execute proper and right justice and judgment on them. I want you to see the flip side of this too. This is really important, because, and if you've lost me, come on back. This is good news for those of you who have been sinned against. If you have been the victim of somebody's injustice, of somebody doing something harmful to you, I want you to hear this this morning. God cares about that. And God hasn't stuck his head in the sand and said, I, I can't do anything about that. God will bring justice on that. And it will happen one way or the other. Either that person will come to faith and repent and let Christ bear the, the judgment and punishment for that, or that person will themselves. Nobody ever gets away with harming and hurting another, God will always pay attention. God will always hear those cries. He might not deal with it right at that moment, and it might take some time, but God will always bring justice. And this passage is talking about those who oppose that kind of thing, a God who brings justice, a God who's compassionate, a God who is good. And he will respond to those who rebel against that. But I want you to hear the good news. The king will bring justice. He will not ignore your situation. Finally, and this is a lot of stuff today. I didn't realize how much was in this passage until I got going. And then I'm hoping, man, I hope I can make sense of all this for everybody. The last piece is that he's the high priest. So he's the Messiah, he's the king, and he's the high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. And this is what verse 4 says. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, an Old Testament priest was a mediator, a go-between between God and his people. An Old Testament priest would intercede on behalf of the people. And he says, in the order or likeness of a very unique Old Testament high priest, and I could have a whole message on just this verse, so I'm going to try to do this as quickly and as efficiently as I can. But 
here's who this high priest is. He's talking about a high priest, a priest named Melchizedek, who we only see a couple of times and very briefly. And the main place that we see him is, if you remember the story of Abraham going and delivering his son, or excuse me, his nephew Lot. Lot gets taken off into captivity. Abraham takes his men and goes and rescues Lot. After that victory, Abraham goes to a priest named Melchizedek and he offers sacrifice and gives tithe to Melchizedek. We don't see much else about him uh, throughout the Bible. But here, the psalmist is saying, from the Lord, the Lord speaking, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. We heard that somewhere? Jesus, the king of righteousness. And he was also king over a city called Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. And Salem... He was the king of peace. He was the king over a city called Peace. So this Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and he's a priest that mediates between people and God. Now, if you want to follow up on this, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you an assignment, all right? So I'm going to give you the assignment of reading Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 this week. Because Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 is the next place that we see all this stuff about Melchizedek and how Jesus is in the line and, of Melchizedek and like and a type in the order of. The order means simply a type is like Melchizedek. And so read through Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, and you're going to see all of this. I'm going to go through it kind of quickly, but here's what we see. Not only is he king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. And after that, in, in Hebrews chapter 5, it emphasizes that Yahweh's declaration, this isn't that it's Yahweh who says he is this priest. And one talking about Jesus, this is important, it's God saying Jesus is this priest. Jesus isn't saying I'm this priest. God the Father is saying Jesus is the priest. He's the one who's going to mediate between you and me. And so already in the Old Testament, he's talking like that. Now we see it in Melchizedek and we see it in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6, they emphasize that Jesus the Messiah serves now and forever as the living and active high priest. Get this, Jesus is going to be your high priest for all of eternity. He's going to intercede between you and God the Father for all of eternity. Not just right here and right now. For all eternity, Jesus is a high priest for you and me. That's good news. He's not going to ever stop back and go, okay, I think my job is done. He is always going to be that one. In Hebrews chapter 7, it emphasizes that the priest, Jesus the Messiah, according to the order of Melchizedek, is the better priest. He's the better priest than the human priests like Aaron and that line of priests because they were end as soon as the temple got destroyed. But Melchizedek was going to be a priest forever, and he's coming from that order of that, and he's going to be this priest forever. Now, I know that's a lot of stuff, and I know it might be kind of confusing, but here's the most important part. Jesus is God's minister to us. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. He's the one that will stand before God and us. He was, he's the one that will say, God, I get this because I live like a human and so I know what they're going through. I have one who is going to be an intermediator for me forever between God and I, who is the perfect one, perfectly God, but he also lived like you and I as human beings, and he knows what it's like. I, I, I find so much comfort in knowing that there's one who stands before the Father. When I struggle, he says, I know what it was like to be a human. Now, he never failed, which I fail, but he never did. 
I find a lot of comfort when I feel tempted to know that he was tempted in every way that we were. Jesus' temptation was far greater than ours because he never gave in. You know how we find relief from temptation? We give in. He never gave in. He battled temptation to victory all the time. He's the one who's advocating for us. All right, now this is kind of a difficult passage. I'm going to ask you to come back with me now here as I wrap up because this is what I want you to take home from all of this today. Covered a lot of stuff. I hope that you'll take this home with you today. First, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the Savior. He was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and he's the one who wants to deliver and save us from Satan. He wants to save us from our sin. He wants to save us from ourselves, and he wants to save us from a culture and a world around us that wants us to do our own thing, actually wants us to do their thing. He wants to do all of that so we can live an abundant life that he designed. Would you hear that this morning? If you've missed everything else I've talked about today, would you hear that part? That God's design is so that you and I could flourish and have abundant life? And so when the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior is trying to save us from Satan's sin, ourselves and culture, he's not trying to be a killjoy, a cosmic killjoy, and we just have to sit and do nothing and not have any enjoyment in life. It's just the opposite. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to do it the way that he designed it because that's for our good and for his glory. So the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, talked about way back here in Psalm 110, is living and active today and wants to deliver and save you and me. Second, Jesus Jesus is the king and he will rule. I hope that you find hope in that. I hope you find hope in the fact that Jesus will rule, but also I hope that you'll humbly submit to his rule in your life. I hope that you find hope that all things will be made right and justice and righteousness will one day occur, but I also hope that you'll humble yourselves and be able to submit to his rule and reign over your life. Both sides of the coin. Rejoice that he has victory and he'll set all things right, but often we do that and we forget that, man, I got some stuff in my own life that I'm not submitting to him. So I look around on TV and I go, oh, God, you got to take care of that situation. you got to bring justice there. And then I go over here and I say something to my wife that isn't very kind or isn't very nice, and I kind of ignore that piece. As long as you're dealing with that guy over there and halfway across the country and his really mean, you know, wicked thing that he did, instead of saying, I want you to rule my life as well. And so humbly coming before him and recognizing that there are things in my life that I'm not submitting to his rule and reign. So I hope that you'll find hope, but I hope that you'll also humbly submit yourself to his rule and reign. And third, I hope that you'll see that he's an eternal priest who will intercede for you and I forever. So go boldly into his presence. Ask for grace and mercy, and he's going to give it to you. He's never going to say, no, 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 no. Dean, this is number 682,000, if you want to put it that high. Probably would be. This is number 966 with this issue. I'm not listening this time. That's not how God operates. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible comes from Hebrews chapter 4. This is what it says about our great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then listen to what he says. Let us then with confidence draw near to his throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He says, you come in there boldly. You come in there opening the curtain saying, Jesus, I've got to come talk to you right now because here I am again. And Jesus is going to say, come on, i got a seat for you. Let's have the conversation again. Jesus is never going to say, nope, nope, nope. He says, come on in, because that's the very reason I came, because I know you need grace and mercy. I know you need that. And I know you need it all the time. So that's why I came. That's why I came as a great high priest, so that I could open the curtain that was part of the temple worship and I can open the curtain and you can come on in and we can sit down and we can have a conversation he says do it boldly isn't that amazing God is saying to you when you struggle when you sin when you have issues going on in your life he is saying to you come in here boldly and come walking through the door and whip it open and say Jesus I need your help because Jesus says I've just been waiting I've been waiting for you to come on in because I got grace and mercy in great, bountiful plenty. And I'm just going to keep giving it to you, and keep giving it to you, keep giving it to you. And we're going to keep taking it and taking it, because I never get to that place where I don't need it. I always need his grace and mercy. John Piper says, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Why? Because every day, I got to know I need that grace today. I'm not saved new every day, but I realize I need his grace and mercy Every day. And this great high priest says, come on in. And he puts his arm around you and he says, let's have a conversation. To me, that is great news. To me, I can't give you much better news than that. That this high priest in the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110 is going to be eternally your high priest. And you can eternally come into his presence asking for grace and mercy. I don't have profound application for you today. This is all I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you today to see and understand that Jesus is the eternal Messiah. I'm asking you today to see and understand and internalize that Jesus is the eternal King. That Jesus is the eternal High Priest. And if you take nothing else away today, write this down, take this with you. Jesus is eternally enough. So rest in him. Humble yourself before him. Trust in him. And delight and find your joy and purpose and meaning in him. The eternal one. The eternal Messiah. Eternal king. Eternal high priest. His name is Jesus. Amen.